Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. When I was a kid, the airport in Bangkok, Thailand wasn't much to look at. These days, it's like any other modern international airport. It's got fast food chains, subway sandwiches, more varieties of cologne than you would ever think necessary for one species to have, Rolex watches, and there's even a Gucci store. And outside of the Gucci store, there's a peculiar sculpture. And the sculpture, if one isn't familiar with the story it's telling, looks a little like a big game of tug of war. There's a group of guys on one side and a group of guys on the other side, and they're playing tug-of-war with what looks like a giant snake. The snake is coiled around a central mountain, and so it looks like if they were tugging on either end of the rope, the mountain would begin to rotate, to churn. It's an interesting vision amidst the glitz of a modern-day airport to see this game of snake tug-of-war. If you stand at a particular angle like I did, you can get a picture of the game of -of tug-of-war with the Gucci storefront behind it. And this is an interesting juxtaposition because, of course, the story that the sculpture depicts is thousands upon thousands of years old. The myth is called the churning of the cosmic ocean, or the churning of the ocean of milk. If you happen to be fortunate enough to go to Angkor Wat in Cambodia and visit the largest temple structure in the world— You can see a phenomenal relief depicting this story, a great myth captured in time across a hundred feet of stone. So what's the story? Naturally, it comes from ancient India, and with India's influence, it spread all across the ancient world to Cambodia, Thailand, Indonesia, Bali. Until now, you can find reference to it in school books and comic books and Hindi films. It's a story that's lasted through the ages. And it tells of a time when the devas, or celestial beings kind of akin to angels, but with often less altruistic intentions, wanted to procure the nectar of immortality that lived in a pot in the center of a vast ocean. The vast ocean, in fact. The cosmic ocean. A great milky white sea that stretches from horizon to horizon. The devas know the nectar is going to have to be raised up from the center of the sea, and that this is going to take some engineering. So they enlist their arch-rivals, the Ashuras, the beings of the underworld, to help them procure the nectar. Their plan is to take the world serpent and stretch it from the heavens to the underworld, and wrap it three times around Mount Mandara, this great column of stone, and then tug on either end, devas on one side and Ashuras on the other, until the central mountain of the universe begins to rotate. The ocean begins to churn, and the nectar bubbles up from the depths. So they do this. They cast the world serpent across the heavens to the underworld. They coil it three times around the central column of Mount Mandara. They harness that primal power and begin to tug back, forth, back, forth, until Mount Mandara turns on its axis and the great ocean begins to churn. It froths and bubbles and boils, and suddenly up from the depths a dark liquid starts to rise. 
Halahala, a primal poison, toxic sludge, and it rises to the surface of the ocean and begins to spread outwards, and the gods fear that it will pour out into the three worlds and destroy the universe. But then, Shiva, the god of yogis, arrives on the scene. He wades into the ocean and cups his hands and gathers the Halahala poison and then takes it to his lips and drinks it. He drinks the poison to save the world. His throat is scorched. It turns a deep peacock blue color. He retreats in pain to a cremation ground where in his suffering the universal mother appears to him, the goddess Tata, who feeds him right from her own breast to cool his throat and ease his pain there in the cremation ground. Back to the cosmic ocean where, now that the poison has been cleared, the treasures can start to rise. Lakshmi, the goddess of abundance and wealth, arises next, and then many jewels start bubbling up celestial nymphs, wealth beyond measure. And then finally, Danvantari, the god of Ayurvedic medicine, carrying with him the sought-after pot of immortal nectar. When I'm teaching on the myths and stories and iconography, I'm often asked what something represents in a particular story or image. What does the ocean represent? What does the serpent represent? What does the game of -of tug-of-war represent? And of course, there are many ways to look at myth, many ways to decode it. There are societal implications to many myths in which myths can tell us what it is to live well with one another. The heroic aspects of myth have been written about at length, in which the myth is an allegory for the personal journey, whether external or internal. And so myths teach the hero that is each of us the tricks of the trade for how to navigate the journey of life. There's also then a meditative level to myth, or a way in which the myth is describing a journey that goes on in the individual consciousness. The battles of the Bhagavad Gita, the journeys, the eventual breakthroughs, all could be said to be transpiring within the great battlefield, the field of consciousness. But all of these levels of mythic interpretation involve splitting the world into parts, and they end up missing a unified vision of myth that at its heart is energetic. In his book, A Branch from the Lightning Tree, Martin Shaw asks us to delve deeper than simply seeing myth in layers of symbolic meaning. Quote, Does the vital, truly mythic synthesis require contact with an unmanipulated natural force, he asks? I'll say yes. It's not about what we say the bird represents. It's about if hearing the word bird gives us wings. We have to remember first and foremost that the myths grow from oral tradition. We have to remember that the myths were hummed around fires to a soundtrack of crackling sparks and snapping twigs. You remember those campfire stories? And the rise of goosebumps on your skin? And your heightened breath? 
The myths were encanted in caves to initiates who had shown themselves ready to receive stories, sometimes told when people were in heightened states of awareness through fasting or deprivation or extended exercise or the imbibing of plant medicines. And most often they weren't just spoken. They were ritually chanted and sung. They grow from a time when perhaps there was not such separation between self and living world, or between a word and what it represents in some kind of abstract sense. So the myths grow from a time when to utter the word sky around a fire at night would transmit something directly to the listener, something very different than the experience of reading the word sky on a page from the comfort of a library. The hoary skin of a pine tree or the froth on top of a churning ocean can be said to represent something, or it can be felt as it is. In the case of the churning of the cosmic ocean, when the storyteller begins speaking of churning and tugging and harnessing and frothing oceans and bubbling poisons, we feel it. So as much as the myth is discussing universal forces and natural order, oceans of time and space that churn around a central axis, the way that galaxies spin around black holes, it is also invoking these same forces that live within us. The myth about churning churns us, and that is not an accident. This is the alchemy of myth. Today on the podcast, we're going to explore the somatic dimension of myth, the idea that the great myths invoke somatic journeys, and one somatic journey in particular, the somatic journey, the journey of the individual practitioner towards a state of ecstatic union with the cosmos, a journey that happens in that little section of space called the human body. How to churn an ocean and breathe like a horse, rekindling the somatic heart of myth, today on The Emerald. Mythologist Joseph Sansonese begins his book, The Body of Myth, with a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, who said this, quote, Every table of values, every thou shalt, known to history or ethnology, requires first a physiological investigation rather than a psychological one. End quote. This is another way of asking, is there a story that could be told that isn't ultimately about the experience of being in a body? The story of the churning of the cosmic ocean is clearly a somatic story. I heard Dr. Vasant Lod speak about it at the Ayurvedic Institute. The story may be describing a world of forces of light and darkness, but ultimately it is a story that takes place within the body of the practitioner themselves, because when it comes to mythic language, body and universe are inseparable. So the Amrita Siddhi, a yogic text whose name means the perfection of the immortal nectar, says, quote, Mount Meru exists in the body. In the body are oceans, rivers, regions, and guardians of the regions, gathering places, sacred sites, seats of deities and deities of the seats, lunar mansions, all the planets, sages and holy men, the moon and the sun, the sky, the wind and fire, the water and earth. Martin Shaw says it raw like this, quote, We are each a strange container of unique experience a castle full of erotic chambers, dust-filled cupboards of old bones, great halls with unending feasting, 
small towers of arcane literature, and balconies from which heartbroken lovers hurl themselves into the moat. All this is going on inside us all the time. Poetry and myth are divining tools that dip into these waters and dredge it to consciousness, giving it form. So the great story is about the body, and the tug-of-war between the gods of above and below is the harnessing of the power of the breath. The breath breathes its way into myth upon myth. In fact, every time we encounter in myth this vision of an unending rhythmic interchange between polar opposites, the myths are de facto describing the breath. And when a myth speaks of a central column or a central mountain, it is not representing or symbolizing a central column in an abstract sense. It is directly invoking the gravitational line that passes through the human body directly to the center of the universe. This is true from the story of the Tower of Babel to the World Tree to Mount Meru. The serpent of dynamic energy, coiled and uncoiled through the breath, makes the central column pulsate, and then the vast ocean begins to churn. This is yoga practice, plain and simple. And when the word ocean is in a myth, the myth is invoking all things oceanic. Geographic seas, inner and outer. The odysseys of the individual life take place on these seas of consciousness, in navigating seas of feeling, in this world which is a sea of forces. And when these seas of consciousness are deliberately churned, what bubbles up first is poison, a lot of muck. Muck, in fact, that threatens to throw the balance of nature into disarray, the same way when skeletons come out of the closet around the Thanksgiving table. It can set the whole family dynamic awry. And there, at the center of it all, is the yogi himself, Shiva, who drinks the poison, takes it upon himself to transmute the muck, a recommittal to the process of practice. And then, wonder of wonders, the poison becomes what? Medicine the god of Ayurvedic medicine, holding the immortal nectar in a pot. Such immortal elixirs were often sought in the external world. Western alchemists spent generations distilling liquids and dews to find the immortal elixir. Taoists dried up bats beneath the full moon trying to find it. But the immortal nectar, for those who knew, always lived inside the skull itself. And the descriptions of it in myth are not symbolic. The immortal nectar is a very real thing. Have you ever been meditating or running or dancing, and there's all this effort and discomfort, and suddenly there's a moment of breakthrough, and then you feel this cascade of warmth. It feels a lot like liquid permeating the entire body, and suddenly thoughts of past and future disappear, and you're here in the present moment. You're in the zone. This is the faintest taste of the immortal nectar. This is a very, very real thing. This is the yogic process, a churning ocean, a rumbling mountain, a game of cosmic tug-of-war, transmuted poison, and a pot of nectar, all within one body, yours, mine. Imagine that.
In his wonderful book, The Body of Myth, author Joseph Sansonese explores these somatic dimensions of myth. Myths like the myth of Sisyphus, whose name itself sounds like the breath, and who in some tellings was punished for trying to capture the four winds in a bag. Sisyphus, who eternally rolls a boulder up the hill, only to have it roll back down. Up. Down. Up. Down. Sisyphus. Sisyphus. Or like the story of Persephone and her cyclic journey to the underworld and back again, the story that formed the basis of the Eleusinian mysteries. Why would such a story be so secret? Why would it be such a mystery that those revealing its secrets would be put to death? The agricultural and seasonal elements of the story are certainly not hard to figure out, unless it was describing something far more personal, something hidden in plain sight, within the body itself, something that all in the right circumstances could access, and therefore something that threatened and has threatened religious hierarchy since the beginning, the yogic secret, that the kingdom of heaven is within, and here's how you get there. Breathing, churning, rolling the boulder to the top of the hill, letting it fall back down, taking the goddess into the underworld, and then she rises back up. When we discover that myths have deep somatic dimensions, it's possible to take two basic views on this. One is that all myth is somatic because the body is a reflection of the greater universe, so it would be impossible to tell a story that isn't in some ways somatic. The other view is that the somatic elements of myth are there deliberately, that encoded in the myths are somatic, yogic techniques for achieving the much sought-after state of trance, of yogic absorption. This might sound weird or far-fetched to the modern mind, until we begin to understand what a central driving force the state of ecstatic union, samadhi, trance, has been for human beings. We're talking about thousands upon thousands of years of striving for this state, cultures that have made the attainment of this state the center of their lives for 50,000 years, cultural agreement on the importance of this state from Hopi, Arizona, to the mystery schools of ancient Greece, to the subcontinent of India, to the trance dancers of the Kalahari Desert, to the shamans of Siberia and the Amazon Basin. The idea that myths encode somatic practice isn't so far-fetched at all when we realize that a huge drive for human beings across much of our history was exactly the reaching of this state. So myths like the churning of the ocean aren't encouraging scholars to sit in front of computers and ruminate on what the myth means on some abstract level. They are encouraging the actual practice of harnessing, coiling, tugging, churning, bubbling, rising. As the great Tamil classic the Tirumandaram says, harness the breath and see that it is not wasted. Bind it in the vessel. Damn the source of Kundalini at the root. Lock the chimney of the mouth, bolt the cavity above with the tip of the tongue, and sit upright in yoga samadhi. This is an active somatic quest, and that quest requires literal bolting, damming, locking, breaking open, harnessing.
Harnessing. Let's talk about harnessing. Many of the great myths speak about harnessing, and the yogic process is described in many of the yogic texts as a process of harnessing. So if we look at the Bhagavad Gita or even Plato's Republic, the vision of the charioteer harnessing horses is a vision that is common across many Indo-European cultures, and it's based on actual experience. It's based on the experience of people on the Central Asian steppes yoking horses to a chariot and then having to control these wild creatures, having to bring strength and focus and kinesthetic awareness to bear in actually harnessing horses. So when you hear academics and teachers say the horses are symbolic of this and the horses are symbolic of that, and instead try to take yourself into a more visceral or more somatic, a more direct experience of the myth, in which the harnessing of the wild horse is a real felt experience. This is how yoga practice is meant to be. The rational dissection of story is not getting at the somatic heart beneath it. The harnessing of two wild horses is clearly the harnessing of the breath. The Tirumandaram says, Great is the jiva, that's the individual practitioner, and two are his steeds, the inhale and the exhale. In fact, horse myths are almost always related to the breath. Xanthus and Balius, the horses of Achilles, are born from the generative wind. Two horses born from the wind that the hero must control. The journey of the hero in the esoteric yogic sense is to be a breath controller or a horse tamer, which is what Homer called all his heroes. This vision of horse as vital breath becomes the wind horse of the Tibetans, carrier of the five yogic breaths, transporter of prayer from the material world to the spirit world. It finds its way to the sacrificial altar as the great cosmic horse of the Upanishads. Quote, Verily the dawn is the head of the horse which is fit for sacrifice, the sun its eye, the wind its breath, the sky the belly, says the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. The horse of the breath trots out onto the great battlefield of Kurukshetra as the two horses of Arjuna's chariot, even makes its way into the nightmare, the steed that carries our breath away in dreams, or crushes our ribcage and gives that feeling of collapse tightening, two experiences directly related to both horses and breath. How did horses become associated with the breath? Here's mythologist Joseph Sansonese on horses and the breath. You have this wonderful description about animals and their place in the myths and particularly about horses and breath. Can you say a little bit more about? Once I got interested in the literature, the religious literature of uh, India, and in particular the Upanishads, and, and one of the Upanishads, I can't remember which one it was, has to do about the horse sacrifice. It's, the whole thing starts with this horse sacrifice, and everything that follows comes from that. This led me to learn that this horse sacrifice is discussed in something even older than the Upanishads, in the Vedas, in the, in the Rig Veda, I believe. So I began to realize that there was something about the horse sacrifice that was important. Well, what was it? This is when I began to develop a theory that animals were descriptions of certain functions in the body. And that what, what were they describing? Well, the thing that they're most prominent for. And one of the things that the horse was prominent for was its breathing its distinctive whinnying and its neighing, and also that it, its incredible endurance in running for dozens and dozens of miles without stopping has to do with its wind power. So horses became the totem of Indo-European man and in, in some sense expressed his vision of himself. I think that in its origins, when Indo-European man was gathered together in southern Russia, they shared 
this totem of the horse because they hunted horses. They hunted horses for food, and this required a great appreciation of the horse. And I think one of the things they came to appreciate was its breathing. It's, it's, it's a breathing machine of unparalleled power. So rather than analyze, well, could it be that horse myths are about the breath and where did he come up with that and isn't that a little bit of speculation? What's far more valuable is to return oneself in one's mind to the visceral experience of what it actually feels like to be with a horse. When one rides on a horse and the horse has been laboring a little bit, you know those deep breaths that start to come from the horse? Those deep sounds we hear horses make? Those... Right? The breathiness of the ribcage of the horse. This sound, this power, this force is something that human beings directly interacted with and experienced for a very, very long time. Imagine the centuries-long journey from the time when human beings first encountered horses to the time when someone decided at last to try to ride a horse. Tens of thousands of years of horses being the foremost subject of cave painting all across ancient Europe before anyone ever rode them. Imagine the years of observation and proximity to massive herds of wild horses on the steppe, and on those cold mornings seeing the breath, the steam emit from their nostrils in this rhythmic pulse, the steam in the sunshine of the ancient world. This is a visceral experience of creatures we share the planet with, and who are a reflection of our own internal processes as well. So when horses are included in a myth from the ancient world, it's not like, oh yeah, he encountered a horse, as we would encounter a horse as a curiosity or an oddity. No, the horse carried with it all kinds of visceral and somatic feelings. Just to name the horse was evocative of a set of feelings and experiences. And then imagine being able to start to harness one's breath, to start to harness the forces of the ribcage, to start to harness this primal wind that moves through the human being, the breath, the primal force, the horse of the steps. Here's Sansanese, quote, As with the shamanic yaki deer dancer, early Indo-European horse hunters very likely made use of sympathetic magic to find game. They endeavored to become like their prey in rituals whose immediate aim was trance. Encounters of archaic hunters with wild horses could be the original inspiration of breath control in Indo-European religion. The hunter-shaman surely must imitate the steady, powerful, and rhythmic breathing of a horse, and when breathing is made rhythmic, trance surely follows. Harnessing breath is a bridge between that which we can control and that which we can't. 
as is the process of taming horses. As Gerald Hausman recounts, Native American horse trainers train their steeds sometimes by getting nose-to-nose with the horses and trading breath. Imagine standing nose-to-nose with a wild horse, the fear in its eye, the fear in yours, and breathing together. It's a precarious place, that place between tamed and untamed between breath harnessed and unharnessed. The horse is the promise of all that raw pranic power can deliver to us when it is harnessed, and the threat of what happens if it remains untamed or gets away from us. It can crush us like the nightmare or carry us away. So the horse myths are full of consequences, consequences of what happens in this life if the raw elemental power is not harnessed. Phaethon, the son of the sun god, in order to show he truly was a god, tricked his father into letting him take the reins of the chariot of the sun. But he can't control the horses. He doesn't have the skill. And so the horses carry him high into space, and the earth freezes. And then they plummet him far towards the earth, and the land is scorched, the origin of the Sahara Desert. And finally Zeus sees that the forces of the universe are out of balance, and so he slays Phaethon with a bolt of lightning. In Ovid's telling of the tale, we hear the sun god giving the exact warning that is often given in the yogic text to pranayama practitioners. Quote, Suppose you are given the chariot, what will you do? Will you be able to counter the turning poles so that the swiftness of the skies does not carry you away? Perhaps you conceive in imagination that there are groves there, and cities of the gods and temples with rich gifts. The way runs through ambush and apparitions of wild beasts. Even if you keep your course and do not steer awry, you must still avoid the horns of Taurus the bull, Sagittarius the Hemonian archer, raging Leo and the lion's jaw, Scorpio's cruel pinchers sweeping out to encircle you from one side, and Cancer's crab claws reaching out from the other. You will not easily rule those proud horses, breathing in and out through mouth and nostrils, the fires burning in their chests. The yogic texts feature these exact warnings that the spiritual path is fraught with danger, it's not all heavenly realms, and that we have to be careful of imagining ourselves as gods. They have a very specific warning against improper harnessing of the breath. The misdirected power of pranayama causes illness, overheats us, and, of course, the potential for death by lightning bolt, the very real threat of seizure that looms over the practitioner who attempts advanced breath practice that they are not themselves ready for. But for those who are able to harness the twin horses of the inhale and the exhale, says the Tirumandaram, the pleasure is headier than wine. It infuses vigor, dispels laziness. Let the wise listen. So the harnessing of the horses of the breath is a very real process, as real as the vital winds that move through us and through all creation. This is how we need to start to feel myth, these wild winds longing to be tamed and harnessed, the taking of the raw elemental prana and churning it through practice, the rising up of forces within the body, the churning of oceans, the rising of nectar. The myths can be a way to retrain ourselves to a deep kinesthetic experience of the world, so that when we speak about Krishna the charioteer, the jiva and his two steeds, we are not speaking about abstractions, we're speaking about deeply buried ancestral kinesthetic realities that continue to have value, the value of yoga, the value of the more connected state. This is a great way to approach yoga practice. Like Zen master Dogen said of meditation practice, If you grasp the point, you are like a dragon gaining the water. 
like a tiger taking to the mountain. I think we have to understand that over the past several thousand years, and particularly the last several hundred with the rise of industrialization, there has been a drastic dulling of our kinesthetic and sensory experience. The breath of horses, the ferocity of animals that would pose a threat to us, the winds that move through the world, all these things stimulate us naturally awake. So the myths can serve to wake us. When you happen upon the sculpture in the Bangkok airport, maybe that primordial tug-of-war can tug you awake. When we talk about horse myths as vivid invocations of the breath and the breathing process, maybe together we can get past the mental machinations of the representational mind that wants to rationally dissect why that might be, and instead be transported right to the Eurasian steppe to the vast horse herds, to the sound of huffing and puffing and neighing and bellowing in the early morning light, the sight of all those illuminated geysers of steam stretching off into the horizon, and feel, feel beyond representation thought into the place of direct understanding. This episode contains reference to several books and classic stories, including, first and foremost, The Body of Myth by Joseph Sansonese, A Branch from the Lightning Tree by Martin Shaw, Ovid's Metamorphosis, The Tirumandaram, The Writings of Friedrich Nietzsche, The Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, The Mythology of Horses by Gerald Hausman, The Amritasiddhi, or Perfection of Nectar, as quoted through The Roots of Yoga by Jim Mallinson, and, of course, the ancient story, The Churning of the Cosmic Ocean. A quick note on these ancient stories, I try to be respectful when cultures have stories or teachings that are considered deeply secret, and so I don't share those stories that there's a sense of cultural guardianship around. The story of the churning of the cosmic ocean is widely available within the public record. It is told and retold by scholars and teachers everywhere. It is even referenced in movies and, of course, in airport sculptures. So I felt empowered to tell the story while remaining within the realm of cultural respect. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the emerald podcast there are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site i hope you enjoyed today's episode and until next time may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination vision and wonder Thank you.